92nd Street Y Online Media is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. This program features Oscar-winning filmmaker Errol Morris discussing his new book, The Ashtray Or, The Man Who Denied Reality, with Ian Baruma, editor of the New York Review of Books. It was recorded on April 18, 2018, before a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y. I'm going to do that last part again. It was recorded on April 18th, 2018, before a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y. Thank you very much. Um, so I read your book with enormous interest um, uh, in one go uh, on a flight from London to New York on, Good God. on, on uh, 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 this weekend. And it made me think of something which is that Sometimes the, the, the most impassioned and most interesting bits of writing come from a sense of outrage, uh, chagrin, and so on. You were chagrined and outraged by your former professor, uh, Thomas Kuhn, who put the whole concept of truth into doubt uh, and then threw an ashtray at you when you put his words into doubt. Is this something that's bugged you all your life and you finally got it off your chest? I hope so. I, I have this principle that you should devote 70% of every day to self-pity. Uh, the conscious part of your day. I can't really speak for sleep. But notwithstanding, you should always leave time for rage. Someone read this book and said, good, I, God, I wouldn't want to get on your bad side. Um, but no, this is, this is annoyed me. Um, I don't know how many years it is, but it's, let's say, half a century. Um, because um, what are the ingredients of rage? Humiliation really helps being humiliated. And an added ingredient is being humiliated for no good reason, uh, being humiliated when you might in fact be right. Um, uh, years and years later, I was invited to give the Spencer Trask lectures at Princeton this is a lecture series that, I don't know, Toynbee, Russell, Einstein, blah, 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 had been asked to give this. And in presenting me, I suppose this was intended to be an honor. In introducing me, one of the Princeton professors said that I had been uh, I had dropped out of Princeton because the work was too difficult for me. And so I had to interrupt the introduction because I took issue with it. I said, I didn't drop out of Princeton because the work was too difficult for me. I was thrown out of Princeton. Uh, I uh, discarded like perhaps a used piece of Kleenex. So yes, am I bitter about it? You know, bitterness gets such a bad name. 
Bitterness is excellent. Um, it's one of the great lines in Billy Wilder, you have to learn to take the sour with the bitter. It's given to William Holden in Fedora. Yeah. What was it special what, about Thomas Kuhn that, that put this rage in your heart? I mean, but perhaps it should be explained uh, a little bit. What, what was it specifically that he said or stood for that um, has fed your creative rage uh, for uh, the last 50 years? Uh, the conviction then, which was in some kind of nascent state, that I was looking at a form of postmodernism. I was looking at a set of ideas which made no inherent sense. It's interesting that Kuhn's most famous book, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, has become so unbelievably famous. Um, and his terms, uh, paradigm, paradigm shift, uh, incommensurability, they're all over the place and they've defined a whole um, era in history and philosophy of science. Um, it's amazing, actually, what people take to be smart, good work. It's depressing. Do you think that it's a coincidence that his views started to take shape on um, the fact that there was no such thing as, as truth and so on, at the same time that students were beginning to revolt, uh, there was a youth rebellion all over the place, and one of the targets of really the glo almost global revolt, was against institutional, institutional religion, which was seen as one of the most more authoritarian sources of oppression. Do you think that secularization and that kind of postmodern doubt about any truth um, came together uh, partly for that reason? I'm not sure what drove it exactly. Um, certainly the war, the Vietnam War, had an enormous effect um, on many, 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 many people. Even though it was interpreted in so many different ways. I mean, that's another discussion of what Vietnam meant to this country. But I came out of the University of Wisconsin in the 60s and the University of Wisconsin, I always thought it was the perfect combination for revolution. Uh, Wisconsin farm boys and New York Jews, you know, you put them together and you get an explosion. <laughs> and in fact, uh, the, the largest bombing at that point in US history came out of Madison. Uh, the bombing of uh, the Army Mathematics Research Center. Yeah, except that these explosions were taking place in Berkeley and Columbia and the Sorbonne and Berlin and so on too. There are not a lot of Wisconsin farm boys involved there. Yes, but I was there. Um, <laughs> so um, 
I mean, it's interesting to me that when I was at the University of Wisconsin, all of these massive demonstrations, it was one of the most active, politically active campuses in the United States. Um, I was there, and at the same time, Richard Cheney was there in married student housing, uh, the other side of the lake, with a very different set of political sensibilities. I would say so. Uh. Um, but I'm not sure what goes into postmodernism, um, or even whether it was a conscious thing at that time. Do you think that Donald Trump, who, who I'm sure has never heard of Thomas Kuhn, let alone read a word he ever wrote, but do you think that the, I mean, some people blame um, the incessant lying that we're exposed to now, uh, the idea that there really is no truth, what, truth is only what you make of it, and it's all, uh, if you're on the left, you see it as a reflection of power relations and so on. Do you think that in some ways, Donald Trump is a child of the postmodernism that you reacted so um, uh, fiercely to as a student? No, I don't. Um, it's hard to identify him with any kind of thought whatsoever. <laughs> uh, at least for me. Um, Except it did have political consequences that you don't, you don't stress in your book. I mean, you don't really um, go into it. And I, that's not a criticism at all. But the, the idea that um, um, representatives of the American government or the president himself can simply lie did not start, of course, with Trump. No, he did not invent lying. No. Um, and do you remember under uh, George W. Bush, the famous phrase, and I can't remember now who said it, but uh, truth is what, uh, reality is what we, what we make of it, or something of that kind. It's been attributed to Karl Rove. Was it? Indeed. Right. But, you know, lying didn't you know, come into existence in the last 10, 15, 20 years. I mean, I have a perverse theory of language that language was invented because people needed to lie more effectively. <laughs> and language served that end. Well, I remember uh, one of um, Gore Vidal's aperçus, and I'm not sure he was right, but this was George Bush uh, the Elder, um, to whom we now think of, uh, we think back with intense nostalgia. But um, I remember when he screwed up his English uh, syntax all the time and came up with those, those sort of torturous sentences. Gore Vidal said, well, that's because he's been lying so much that he can't really speak English anymore. Is I there anything to it? Not really. I think lying is a, is a good exercise in language learning. Um, learning to lie more and more effectively. Um, this is essay, I can't figure out why more people don't read it. I just assigned it to an odd character two days ago um, from actually um, the Trump administration. 
but it's Schopenhauer's essay. Essentially, Schopenhauer's essay on how to lie. Um, he wrote this essay called The Art of Being Right, or sometimes it's translated The Art of Controversy. Um, he starts out by saying there are two ways to win an argument. There's logic and there's dialectic. Now, everybody knows you don't win an argument with logic, so let's move on quickly to dialectic. And then he proceeds to give you 36 ways to win an argument any way you possibly can. Um, telling the truth is not one of them, I might add. And he was Hitler's favorite philosopher. Is this true? Yes. Hitler was a great reader of Schopenhauer. And it was Goebbels who famously said, if you want to what was it, if you want to convince people, you have to make the lie big enough. Yeah. So, so he, they were very consciously lying. But Karl Rove's idea of reality is what we, we make of it is still unusual and, and, and rather close to the postmodern idea that um, truth is simply a reflection of power. And I think there is a difference between that and simply... Li most liars don't want you to know that they're lying. Richard Nixon, I don't think, would have said such a thing. And uh, that's why I think there is some, somewhere, by osmosis perhaps, but a connection between postmodern thought and our modern liars in, in, in public office. Well, the most effective liars, I believe, have no idea that they're lying. Um, in order to lie, isn't it much better to believe what you're saying is the truth. It gives it a kind of added heft. <laughs> um, there's a wonderful essay written by a friend of mine, Ron Rosenbaum, that appeared in The New Yorker. It appears in his book Explaining Hitler. Uh, these two uh, students of Hitler, Alan Bullock and H.R. Trevor Roper, arguing about the nature of Hitler's evil. Um, did Hitler really believe in Nazism? Or did he just see it as a tool um, in order to control people? Um, I never thought it has to be A or B. No. It can always be some horrible mishmash of both. Um, but I always think if you're selling a bad vacuum cleaner to somebody door to door, it really helps if you believe that it's the best vacuum cleaner in the world. I think Hitler probably did believe a lot of what he wrote and said, but Goebbels clearly, Goebbels believed in Hitler but clearly knew that, that a lot of what he was putting out as propaganda minister was a lie. And it's, I, I think it's also true to say that those Nazi leaders um, who were 100% believers um, in um, race theories and so on and so forth were often regarded by some of their colleagues in the Nazi government as cranks. So when Himmler, another true believer, I think, uh, really did think that uh, had had theories about the origin of Arianism and that it was to found in 
sort of medieval signs and so on. I think he was regarded as a crank by others who saw it indeed, saw ideology more as a tool to control uh, the masses. So I think you're right. I think it's not either or. Yeah, I don't know what what people believe nowadays. It's, it's, it's almost unfathomable. Um, and there seems to be a kind of caprice. I mean, I, you have conservative Republicans, you have the alt-right, um, you have progressive Democrats or what somehow stands in. All of these people in the White House being kind of scrambled around, uh, almost like in a rock tumbler. But there doesn't really seem to be rhyme or reason to any of it. I mean, I would hesitate to call it postmodern or anything like that. Um, post-reason, post-rational. Um, where you don't know why people are doing anything the only thing you can be certain of is that someone, namely the President of the United States, might change his mind overnight, and it might be something else altogether. Um, a kind of Looney Tunes. But maybe believes everything when he says it. And so even if he changes his mind completely the next day, he, then he believes that. I mean, that, that's also um, characteristic of a certain kind of liar, and it's hard to know whether you can still call them liars, because they do indeed believe it every time. Like serials, like Casanova, uh, who did, who, who simply fell in love with every woman he seduced. Or is that analogy? No, I like it. I fall in love with everybody <laughs> that I interview. Mass murderers, um, psychos of one kind or another. Stephen Hawking, <laughs> um, Robert McNamara, the only one that I did not fall in love with, um, Donald Rumsfeld. Can you explain why? Oh, yeah. He made it difficult. I was, I was ready for love. <laughs> but he made it hard. Um, somehow there was this facade, veneer. Veneer sounds better. Um, he, uh, you couldn't penetrate, at least I couldn't penetrate that facade, that veneer, and I came to believe, maybe out of frustration or whatever, I came to believe that that was it. There was nothing beyond it. Um, what you see is what you get. That in plumbing for some kind of depth uh, that I had made a terrible miscalculation.
you know? You know, I asked him, he's sitting in the Oval Office um, when we're pulling out of Saigon. There are the helicopters and people scrambling on board, the American Embassy people pushing the helicopters off of um, the, the aircraft carriers, et cetera, et cetera. The end of one of the worst debacles in American history. Um, something that I was ashamed of then and remain ashamed of. Um, so I'm going to ask Rumsfeld, what were you thinking, you know, like, um, there you are right in the middle of all of this. Um, and he said, well, some things work out, some things don't, that didn't. Here's the real fear. Not that he was hiding something, and maybe I'm being terribly unfair here, but that's all that he had to give. That was it. Okay, sera, sera. McNamara did better. At least there was a willingness to examine the past, to confront the past. Oh, and by the way, I should say this about the book. The book is in many ways, of course, a book about history, of what it means to do history, what it means to examine the past. Um, after all, History occurred in this world that we live in. Certain things happened or didn't happen. We may not be able to know exactly what those things are, but we know that there were those things. Maybe the extent of our knowledge is such that we can maybe never know, although we can never know that we can never know. Now you sound like Donald Rumsfeld. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> but he comes across in your film, I must say. Um, and the answer he gave to your question about uh, Vietnam seems to support it. He it. It was the answer of a psychopath. Because it's a man who cannot feel the consequences of what he's doing. And he knows it, but he can't feel it. Whereas McNamara was wrestling with his demons, and, you can, and that comes across very strongly in, in the film that you did with him. And he cries even, and, and I don't think they were fake tears. It's, uh, uh, although, when it came to his loyalty to President Kennedy and, and, and Johnson and so on, it, it, it it's becomes a little unclear. The reason for his crying becomes a little unclear because he never actually takes personal responsibility for what happened, does he? He does and he doesn't. I mean, it's part of how this country is constituted. Uh, he serves at the pleasure of the president. Uh, initially, John F. Kennedy, and then after Kennedy's assassination, Lyndon Johnson. Um, 
I would say he does and he doesn't. It's so complicated. And by complicated, I don't mean to avoid discussing it. I had this argument very recently. Um, like, who is McNamara? And I have my own theories about the man who I actually came to really love. I often say he's my favorite war criminal. <laughs> Was he a war criminal? Kind of, yeah. I'm, I'm lucky that I've never been put um, in that kind of position. I've often said my grades weren't good enough to become a war criminal. Well, he said he was a war criminal himself in your film when he, he was reflecting on uh, the bombing of, of the firebombing of Tokyo and other Japanese cities in World War II when he worked for Curtis LeMay. And um, Curtis LeMay's famous um, uh, words, which are usually attributed to the Vietnam War, in fact, I think it was about World War II and, and the bombings of Japan specifically, when he said, we have to bomb them back to the Stone Age. And it was McNamara who had to work out statistically how many bombs you needed to kill X number of people. And he said, I think in your film, I think I'm right. Yes. Well, he said, if we'd lost the war, LeMay and me would have been tried as war criminals. Yes. So and again, not something probably Rumsfeld would have, it wouldn't, wouldn't have crossed his lips, I don't think, something of that kind. Nothing of the sort. I was criticized. Someone said to me, well, McNamara had time to reflect on all of this, whereas the Iraq war was something in much more recent history. Uh, uh, you know, if you ask me, I'll ask myself, would that have made a difference? Um, Rumsfeld won't last that long, but if you asked him in 40 or 50 years about this same thing, I doubt that the answer would change. No, I'm sure that's true. To what extent did your uh, feeling about the nature of truth and so on, which you obviously thought about a lot as a student, um, contribute to your decision to make documentary movies? I'm not sure. I often like to think that I made decisions to do things out of desperation. And I wanted to make a movie. I had no script. And making a documentary seemed to be the easiest way to go about it. So I made Gates of Heaven. But was it a way to, to get at truth, as it were? I don't think until the, the thin blue line that that became my fixation. I mean, I was lucky to stumble on such an interesting case. Um, I'd worked as a private detective. Uh, when you're working as a private detective, truth isn't necessarily first and foremost uh, on your agenda of what to do. Um, you're being paid to do a job. And there's always the reality, no matter what you find, at a certain point, the person paying you may say, okay, 
we have enough. You did your job. Bye. Um, and you can say to yourself, whoa, 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 I was just about to figure out what really happened. Or, um, so what? But when you're working for yourself and you're a crazy obsessive, and I am a crazy obsessive, then there's no limits. You know, I always compare this to Kafka's hunger artist um, when they stop paying him to fast. He's just going to continue and fast himself to death. Still, whether you're a private detective or a documentary filmmaker, trying to figure out what really happened is, is still part of your job. And how people take it and what the consequences are and whether they want you to continue or not, uh, that's something else. But the exercise is trying to figure out what happened, no? Yeah. Isn't that what detectives are supposed to do? Absolutely. You know, you, um, you read murders in the Rue Morgue. You know, you want to know. Poe knows you want to know. You know, what happened? You know, he gives you all of these clues, these details that don't really make complete sense and draws you into this I often think of it as a series of black boxes. And history is the ultimate black box, if you like. Um, in my current film, or series, whatever you want to call it, Wormwood, there's a hotel room, room 1018A at the Statler. Um, what happened in the room? What happened in that room? In fact, my protagonist, Eric Olson, his mother says to him, you're never gonna know what happened in that room. You know, um, Perhaps it should be explained. Has everybody seen the film? Um, that, that it's about somebody who worked for the chemical warfare unit, didn't he? The, the, yes, Fort um, Detrick. Fort um, Detrick, and who fell out of the window and very likely was pushed, um, but or it was never killed clear. prior to being pushed. Something, some a mystery, and but the film is really about the, somebody um, who's not a million miles away from the way you describe yourself, because the son Olson um, spent his entire adult life trying to figure out what happened, and he he is an obsessive about finding out. Oh yes. Is, is he a, a character you identify with? Of course. I mean, I, uh, I mean, my relationship with Eric is tangled, tortured, but yes, he is someone that I identify with very strongly. Um, wanting to know, to be connected to the real world. Um, to me, it's the highest human enterprise. I mean, I'm not sure that we are better than chimpanzees. Um, but say we were better than chimpanzees. Isn't it that we search for some kind of truth? Isn't that what gives some nobility to this rather tawdry enterprise that we call life? 
or human life? I don't know. But there seem to be two things going on in, in many of your films, in, in the one on McNamara, the one on Rumsfeld, um, even the one on, on Olsen, which is on the one hand, it's of course trying to figure out what happened. On the other hand, it also seems to me there is a fascination for the characters uh, themselves, what makes them tick, how they see the truth. Um, so it's about more than trying to figure out what happened in a particular instance, whether it's the Vietnam War or what happened to Olson's father. It's also their studies in character, uh, of studies of characters, of people who, who themselves uh, have one or have, have, have an attitude towards the truth, or, or am I over-interpreting? No, you're not. You're being nice. Thank you. Um, I'm not here to <laughs> be nasty. <laughs> I, uh, I also think that it's, it's not just pursuit of truth that's really interesting. It's the avoidance of truth. History often strikes me as attempts to negate the truth, to obfuscate the truth, to cover up the truth. <laughs> to rewrite history in such a way that obscures the truth, and on and on and on and on and on. But none of those things would have any meaning. This whole idea of obscuring, rejecting, denying, covering up, unless we thought that there was a real world out there in which things happen. It's what makes history really so unbelievably fascinating. Um, I, I remember very early on, it's interesting in the context of the book, is Kuhn had this story about his epiphany. Everybody should have an epiphany, if you're lucky, more than one. Um, and so he has a story about his epiphany, and his story is... He's, he's reading Aristotle. What I really like about it, he's not even reading Aristotle in the Greek. He's reading some translation. There shouldn't be the possibility of such a translation, but he's reading a translation, and he has this epiphany, and suddenly he's back there with Aristotle. He's in Aristotle's mind, head, however you want to describe it. And he's saying that this is part of how history has to be done. Um, I, I would say it's how self-deception is done. You convince yourself of something that is impossible and you insist that it's true. Um, and it's really interesting to me that maybe earlier, this happened in an earlier time, that Saul Kripke was writing an essay as an undergraduate on R.G. Collingwood, who had just this very idea uh, as a part of his philosophy, uh, his idealist philosophy, where he actually imagined himself going back and entering the brains of <laughs> various historical figures. 
Uh, he said that, uh, that history was the reenactment of the past in the mind. And um, I would put it slightly differently. And Saul Kripke wrote this essay, which I rather love, <laughs> and reflects so many of my own ideas that go back to that time at Princeton. Perhaps this is a moment for you to come in. Um, does anybody want to ask a question? Don't be shy. Certainly an, abu yes. an abusive question would be... An helpful. abusive question would liven things up. I never knew him. Um, you know, I tend to think of almost the past with regret. If anything led to what we have now, it should certainly be censured and, uh, and held in ill repute. Um, I don't know. It seems that that this election has turned everything topsy-turvy. Because no one really can figure it out. They may pretend that they're figuring it out. But it seems like one of the greatest mysteries. Um, well, one of the mysteries is that the success of Donald Trump, um, who's probably who lies more blatantly than any president in U.S. history. Let's say he is, ba he babbles. Let's say he babbles, <laughs> but he's po he's popular with the people who like him because they think he's authentic. And that people like Bill Clinton, who are real political pros, are somehow inauthentic. And here finally is a man who says what he thinks. And, uh, and, and therefore, th this is very refreshing. And, and we want him. So there's a strange paradox there. Well, there's one of the buzzwords of the moment. I do a lot of commercials. So um, that's how I earn a living. Um, and commercials are endlessly fascinating. You get to observe kind of the inner workings of our world. Um, uh, for a while, I had this painting that was transferred to canvas of Mammon. And I would have a prayer to Mammon before we started doing a commercial. And evidently, this so antagonized various agencies that it had to be forcibly taken away from me. No more prayers to mammon at the beginning of a commercial. But I would say things like, oh, great mammon. Thank you. Thank you for the commercial you have given us today. Thank you for advertising and branding and marketing. Thank you, great mammon. Yeah, they took it away from me. Um, but one of the words they use all the time is authenticity. We'd like this, we'd like this to be authentic. Oh, of course. In fact, I specialize in authenticity. I'm glad you hired me. 
I can really deliver on authenticity. Of course, I have no idea what they're talking about. What is authenticity? Who in hell knows? Well, babbling, in a way, is probably closer to authenticity than a well-polished speech, because a well-polished speech by a political pro is, is varnished to a large extent, whereas babbling is unvarnished. And one thing you can say about Donald Trump, he's, he's unvarnished. Yeah. It's a, re a remarkable ability to just contradict himself without knowing it. I mean, lots of people have that talent. In fact, I probably have it as well. We all do that, but a good politician can cover it up. But um, you have to know that you're doing it. And I don't think, you know, he had Rosenstein come up with that cockamamie reason for firing Comey. Why are they firing Comey? Oh, they're firing Comey because he was so mean to Hillary and that was so disturbing and upsetting, we just had to get rid of him, except he forgot that that was his rationale for firing Comey within, I don't know, a couple of hours. And then started saying, oh, well, we fired him because of the Russian investigation. He couldn't even remember I think part of being a good liar is you remember, oh, I told that lie at around 2 o'clock in the afternoon. It's now 4 o'clock. Maybe I should stick with it. <laughs> but he doesn't have that ability. I mean, that's mashed potatoes thinking. I mean, it's quite amazing. It doesn't inspire, let me put it this way, it doesn't inspire confidence. You don't think, oh, here's a guy who really is self-possessed, in control, knows what he is doing. Yeah. I think we can all agree on that. Another question, please. It's like a bingo game where people are picking <laughs> numbers at random. Yes. L23. N6, A12. Please. How do you react to the fact that the FBI directors are now considered the paragon of rectitude, when in our day they were considered the absolute opposite? I think that's called irony. Um, just because we're so desperate now, there's a hope that there's someone out there who might even if they don't do the right thing, they might have an idea about what the right thing is, as opposed to the wrong thing. Well, so in your day, it was J. Edgar Hoover, who was a very odd duck, because in some ways, he, he probably did believe a lot of what he said. He was interested in finding out the truth, but only to use it for malign purposes. Is that, would that be correct, do you think? Yeah, I, um, malign purposes are really interesting. Maybe all purposes are malign purposes, except occasionally someone does something nice for another person. It's usually a mistake. <laughs> Did I do something nice? I never intended to do that. 
I had intended something really deeply malicious and got confused. <laughs> Another question. There must be. Yes. Yeah. Are you setting aside what that means to them versus what it means to you? Do you look at the product or the campaign and try to find a way to speak the truth of the product or present the product in a truthful way? Does that does truth come into making commercials at all? Thank you for asking that question. Absolutely not. <laughs> Um, and I'm not sure that I know what authenticity means. I mean, I have a kind of idea, you know. But in a commercial, authenticity, we want the, the things that people say about the refrigerator to be authentic. You might even call it a debasement of language. Um, something that, that Orwell might carry on about. Authentic advertising. Is it linked with the truth? I'm not even really sure. But do people even expect the truth? I mean, you'd have to be slightly demented if you're watching a commercial for a, a soap product or something, and they say it's the best thing ever. If, if you then, if you watch that and you think, well, it must be the best thing ever, you're either soft in the head or, or, or even a, a young child who wouldn't believe it. So there are obvious, what goes into a good commercial is probably not the expectation that people think it's true. It must be something else. You, you plant something in their heads, the brand name, or what makes a great commercial? People buy the thing you're advertising. If it's a good commercial, but Maybe it's not why? even a good commercial. I mean, a good commercial, I suppose, is an entertaining, artistic commercial of some kind. But a good commercial, let's face it, what are you doing? You're selling stuff. And how effective is it at, at, at selling stuff? I used to have arguments. I did a lot of Apple commercials over the years. I'd have arguments with Steve Jobs, the only CEO who would call me in the middle of the night, and I mean the middle of the night, because he's, you know, in Cupertino or thereabouts, and I'm here in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I'm on the East Coast, and. Um, we would endlessly disagree, and he loved fighting about it, which is interesting. I mean, he cared what I thought, would argue, not that he would let me win. That was obviously out of the question. But what was he interested in? He was interested in his brand. He was interested in selling computers. Um, was he interested in truth? Uh, no. 
I don't think so. But nor are many people. And there is an interesting relation, I think, between Donald Trump and commercials and the, and the, and, and the scandal press. I mean, no doubt there are people who pick up the National Enquirer at the supermarket and read about Hillary Clinton being a mass murderer or something and think it's true. But um, most people probably who buy the National Enquirer don't buy it because they think they're getting the truth. It, it's entertaining. And in the same way it's that... It's no longer. It used to be entertaining. Yeah, but, but that was the expectation, I think, just as people, people who like somebody like Donald Trump, one of the reasons, I mean, there are obviously many reasons, was because they found him more entertaining than Hillary Clinton was, who's not a very entertaining figure. And I think the good commercial probably hits home, not because people rarely think that the product it's advertising is better than a similar product with a different brand name, they just like it better. Well, I used to claim, I think it's probably correct, that I was the only person in America who subscribed to both the Weekly World News and the London Review of Books. Um, I love the Weekly World News. My son was taught to read using the Weekly World News. Um, Bat Boy Escapes from Cave. What more compelling story can you imagine? But I can't, I can't in good conscience. Well, the Weekly World News is now defunct and the National Enquirer has become a Trump rag. Yes, it has, it has now, it's a, it's, it has a, an overtly political agenda. But again, I, I wonder how many people who read it with enthusiasm do so because they think it's a source of truth. I used to worry about Bat Boy. <laughs> Rightly so. <laughs> I hope Bat Boy is okay. Yes. <laughs> what are you trying to show in the Umbrella Man? What's the purpose? Good Lord, do I have to have a purpose to these things? Um, it was about how conspiracy theories often can be wrong. <laughs> that you can be privy to a series of bizarre events where you say, how could this possibly be innocuous? Um, the case of the Umbrella Man is this guy who's holding an umbrella to the Kennedy assassination. And of course, people start theorizing, what does the umbrella man mean? Is he part of the conspiracy? Is he signaling co-conspirators? What is the umbrella man's agenda? And so much had been written. Um, now I have this friend, Tink Thompson, who I used to be a private detective. Tink is a private detective um, who tells the story. He's the guy who tells the story of the Umbrella Man in my film uh, on OpDocs in the New York Times. But um, Tink, one of my very favorite people, uh, got his PhD in philosophy from Yale in Kierkegaard studies. He wrote two books on Kierkegaard. He claims I'm the only person who's ever read them. 
I don't know. I actually liked both of them. Um, and um, in the middle of this interview with him, I asked him, so, Tink, what does Kierkegaard have to do with the Kennedy assassination? And he said, absolutely nothing, fucking nothing, has nothing whatsoever to do with the Kennedy assassination. So I get out his second Kierkegaard book, <laughs> the pseudonymous works of Soren Kierkegaard, titled The Lonely Labyrinth. It's a great title. And in there, <laughs> I like doing this stuff. Um, he's talking about the crucifixion of reason on the cross of ambiguity. Still one of my favorite expressions. So I read this to Tink and he apologized. <laughs> I think that should be the last word. Oh, there's one more question and that, that we, then we have to end it. Yes. In my uglier moments, yes. Because um, it seems... Yeah, this is a question about does Kuhn realize, what's the technical term, that he's full of shit? Um, my thinking is yes. Um, part of this, too, is that um, I, I wanted to go to these lectures that were being given by Saul Kripke. And I was told that under no circumstances should I even think of doing that. Now, what puzzles me is that I don't think that Kuhn was sophisticated enough in those days to know really much about Kripke's philosophy or why he should be afraid of it. I like that. Why he should be afraid. Oh, of course he was right. Um, what's the most disturbing thing about it is that he spent 20, 30, 40 years defending his positions 
but in a way that seemed to me inherently dishonest, intellectually dishonest. Um, what also interests me um, is how this whole cottage industry that developed out of the structure of scientific revolutions, how it persists. It's interesting, these strategies. So I published the ashtray, or the earliest version of the ashtray in the New York Times. So people would say, oh, they said all kinds of nasty things. People said I had no understanding of Saul Kripke's work. People said that what Kripke was doing had nothing whatsoever to do with what Kuhn was doing. I would say that somehow, if reference is involved, it most certainly does. And um, they also said that the story of the throwing of the ashtray was something that I had made up, that it was apocryphal, blah, 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 blah. Um, a friend of mine said, well, they obviously don't know you. I've known you for 40 years. I've seen people throw hot coffee on you. I've seen people try to punch you. I, I, uh, I've seen people yelling and screaming at you. Um, they obviously don't have any experience with you and who you are, which I thought was a lovely thing to say. <laughs> I think we have to leave it at that. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you all. Thank you for listening to this 92i program. For more information, visit 92i.org. This program is copyright 2018 by the 92nd Street Young Men's and Young Women's Hebrew Association. All right, last one. 92nd Street Y Online Media is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. This program, ooh, hold on. 92nd Street Y Online Media is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. This program features journalists and Axios founders, Jim, oh, I just realized, how do you pronounce Jim Vandehei? Is it Jim, Jim Vandehei? Vandehei? Is it Vandehei? Vandehei. Why look it up? Yeah, this one I don't well, want to Well, I get. can't play, uh, let's see, while Pro Tools is going, let's do it on Paolo's computer. Or maybe I can find it on, do you want to hit pause on that or? Uh, yeah.